Come spend a while on our brilliant isle with a gorgeous pile of books. Come waste a day where the dolphins play and have your say about which book's good and which book sucks. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Island of Brilliant, the, the podcast. podcast. Sorry. <laughs> the podcast that treasures all that's brilliant in children's books. Every day was a cloudy day for me. Then good luck came knocking at my door. Skies were grey, but then not anymore. Frank, have you been enjoying, like me, the beautiful sounds of the ukulele Uff Trio? I love the ukulele of cheer so much. And I said cheer instead of trio, didn't I? You've got a yes. problem saying ukulele of trio, yes. Frank. Yes. We've been workshopping this for a while. You still can't get to grips with it. No. The ukulele <laughs> of trio is what gets me through the long, long island days. <laughs> well, I'm afraid, Frank, you find yourself in the Island of Brilliant Tattoo Parlour because I've decided that I'm going to tattoo ukulele of trio onto your body. Where would you okay. like me to tattoo it? Um, somewhere I can read it. So the back right. of my hand. The back of your hand. All right. Yeah. So I'm just going to... You could put ukulele on one hand and trio on the other. No, because and then you'll get it wrong. Your... You'll lose the off. <laughs> we'll lose the off, Frank, and this is the whole problem. <laughs> We've been getting sat loads of posts from angry listeners saying, why, oh, why, oh, why can Frank Cottrell Boyce not grasp this very simple band name? Just not respecting the ukuleles enough. You're really not. How are you with the Yellow Magic Orchestra? Can you remember that? <laughs> I, I went to see them in Eric's years and years ago. Did you really? Scamoto was in that band, wasn't he? Well, maybe yeah. we need to have an island of brilliant Yellow Magic Orchestra offshoot. Or part. a ukulele Yellow Magic Orchestra tribute band. Well, yeah, but I, I don't think you should approach them with this, Frank, because you're in their bad books because you can't remember their name. Yeah, saying Yellow Magic Ukulele oh. Trio. <laughs> off, off trio. That's, anyway, look, we need look, to move that's on. That's enough. That is enough. How are you? You oh, all right? Very good. Yeah. Yes, I'm very good. Good. Before I tell you about what I've been reading, can I tell you about a little off-island adventure I had? Oh, gosh. Yes, go on. You were in a deep, deep slumber. I didn't like to wake you, but um, someone came and, and took me to the mainland and they asked me to get involved with, have you heard of Diary of a Wimpy Kid? I think I've heard of it. Is it you think like... you've heard of it. <laughs> you think you've heard of Jeff Kinney and the Jeff Wimpy Kinney. Kid books, of which now there are, I think, 18. Isn't that nuts? Wow, that's a lot. That's 18. a lot of jokes. It's a lot, of jokes. a lot of jokes. So have you, have you, I don't want to shame you, but have you read any? Yeah, I love them. Yeah. So I hadn't read any, but I'd heard of them. And then when I had my own kid, I picked one up. I hadn't really thought about them. I'd assumed they'd be fine. But when I actually read them, I was like, these are hilarious. <laughs> Why, yeah. You know, these are genuinely hilarious. We, so we love them. They're fantastic. So imagine my surprise when I was invited. Jeff Kinney came to the UK and he did two days of events. And I was delighted to be invited to one of them. As the whole event he does is set up like a game show. It's really wow. funny. The, the, the kids love it. And there are about eight different rounds and he gets kids up and there are buzzers. And, you know, it's it's just a hilarious 
chaotic event. But running through the whole event, any time a kid wins, they win a load of books for their school library, which is fantastic. He gets librarians on stage and he gets parents on stage. They have a dance off. It's hilarious. I was invited on stage for a round called Are You Smarter Than An Author? Well, you know, I'm quite competitive, Frank, right? Yeah. So yeah. When, so I thought, oh, I'll have to go on and play nice with the kids. That's never going to happen with me. So I did, I did turn around to the kids and say, I am going to crush you, which they took in good humour. They absolutely destroyed me. No. Yeah, I was rubbish. It was really hard. <laughs> Tell me a question you got wrong. Oh, it was like complete the Taylor Swift lyric and I'm not a very good Swifty oh, no. and I didn't know the lyric. And then it was like, what Pokemon does this turn into? And stuff about Star Wars. Just, just none of them were my key subjects. If it had been, oh. you know, what album did the Pet Shop Boys release in 1988, I'd be able to tell you. What is the answer to that, just so that you can comfort yourself? Introspective. <laughs> Introspective's the answer. But just to say, it was just such, it was so fun being part of this event because it was one of those moments where you're like, authors are superstars, because that's kind of how yeah. it, that was the vibe. Like the kids were like, it's a rock star. They were so excited. Um, and they, and they are, like you said, they're genuinely funny. And if yeah. you read them to your kids, you get all the credit for the funny, which is yeah. so good. Yeah, they are hilarious. Because sometimes, you know, when things are very popular, it can kind of trigger a kind of snobbishness that we don't even know we have. I'm not proud of, of that. But if, you have, if you're having that vibe about Wimpy Kid, I say get over it and give them a whirl because they are But also people are great. funny. People think funny is not important. Yeah, funny, like funny's funny is less really funny is is somehow deemed to be a bit lesser, isn't it? Somehow. Yeah. Funny is just like a lot harder work to create. And if yeah. something's funny, if you laugh, that's because your brain's having a little workout at something completely unexpected. And it's really, really important to do funny. And it's really hard to do funny. So it reminds me of kind of Liz Pishon and you know how many but she writes and yet she keeps up that consistency of funny and also relatability and I think Jeff Kinney is someone who does the same thing. Well you've had a lovely time. I've had such a lovely time. What did you get up to while I was away? I've read a few books. Okay. So I read a wonderful Italian book called Glow Rushes mm -hmm. by Roberto Piumini mm -hmm. and that's got this sort of lovely clarity to it. It's like if you can imagine like an Italo Calvino story for children. Oh wow. It's about a little boy who's the son of a, a great king, but he has this weird disease where he can't leave his room. Oh. Um, so he's allergic to fresh air and to sunlight. So he's completely confined. So the king hires a painter to mm -hmm. paint the world that he's missing on the walls. Oh, gosh. Okay. Amazing. And it really pulls it off. It's like a fable, but it really grows. And you relish the wonder of the paintings, but then you, you start to realise the limits of it as their relationship grows. It's just so beautiful and very small. Nicely presented little book from Pushkin Press. Really, oh. really, really good. I also read In A Few Minutes, but it was interesting. I read mm. um, With You Every Step, which is by mm -hmm. Rob Burrow and Kevin, Senf Kevin Sinfield, who, because you're such a yes. big sports head, I know that you know who they are. <laughs> no, but I actually do know who they are because their story is heartwarming. Their story is very heartwarming. It's, uh, it's a story of friendship and this book with you every step is just a little meditation on friendship. But what's really great about it is that it's got 
illustrations by lots of different people. Rob Bidoff is in there, Reggie Brown. Great. Jill Smith, Sam Usher, David Litchfield. It's a lovely little thing to hold in your hand. And it's about the power of friendship. And it made me think we could probably try and be friends at some point. You and I. Yeah. Instead of you being my nemesis, you could be my (laughs) friend. Uh, Anyway, I got to the end thinking there would be a twist, but there wasn't a twist. So slight friendship seems quite hard work. A twist? What do you think the twist was going to be in this story? I was reading it thinking, maybe they're not really friends. They're just saying that. (laughs) They're going to be terrible to each other because that's how I've been, you know. Anyway, your brain that says a lot about brain your works. brain, friend. Is it? And also, I read it and I thought, you know, it might be nice to be friends with, with no idea, but then I read it. It's like friendship seemed like a lot of hard work. There was a lot yeah. of I'll always be there for you, which I really won't. I know. <laughs> I can't. I know. I can't rely on you, Frank. Can I? Can I ask? Is it? Is so? Is this a picture book? Well, yes. There's very few words and lots and lots of pictures, but it's not. It's like a set of pictures and some mm-hmm. captions. Okay. It's not like a driven narrative picture book. It's lots of different drawings by different people. All the drawings are exquisite and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's like a little meditation. It's a little meditation. It's more of an anthology, yeah. Right, okay. Well, that sounds delightful. Because I've been having such a glamorous jet set in life, I've only read, yeah. the, one, I've only read the one book. Um, it was a, it's a goodie, though. It's called Northern Soul, and it's by, oh, Phil, Phil, it's by Phil Earl. He's a bit of a powerhouse, isn't he, Phil Earl? Yeah. He's knocking them out of the park, isn't he? Isn't he? He really is. Yeah. And this is such a gorgeous book. And it's a bit, I tend to go for, as you know, I tend to skew quite young with my reading. But this is, I would say, definitely for 12 and overs, because there's some very light swearing here and there, but nothing, nothing heavy. But it's more the subject matter. It's about a 14 year old boy called Marv who lives in an unidentified northern town, hence the northern. He lives with his dad uh, as a single parent and he falls in love. He falls in love big time with a girl who moves into his street. It's just so charmingly written. He doesn't know what to do about this girl that he's suddenly fallen in love with. But then, so his dad's a massive record collector and um, Marv comes back home suddenly in love and he hears this voice. He's like, oh my goodness, who is singing this song that seems to articulate everything I'm feeling? And his dad says... Well, this is a guy called Otis Redding. And he's like, wow. Okay, I don't know who this Otis guy is, but he seems to know everything there is to know about love. And what happens is Marv goes to sleep and he wakes up and the ghost of Otis Redding comes no. to vi- yeah, comes to visit him and dispense his love advice. However, two major things. Otis Redding appears to be from Barnsley and it's addicted to fast food. So it's just like picking up pe- three-day-old pizza from Marv's room and eating it and going, well, Marv, fingers, lad. And um, the second thing is the advice he gives is really, really bad. <laughs> it's like, try, yeah, it's like, try some of these pickup lines and all the rest of it. It's hilarious. It's such a sweet book. It's published by Barrington Stoke. So right. they, they spe- if you don't know Barrington Stoke, they specialise in publishing books uh, that are very readable for kids or adults with dyslexia. So there's a fantastic clarity to it. It's not a particularly long book, but it is full of charm. And, and, you know, it's definitely skewed at kind of teenagers who are maybe those hormones are a fluttering slightly. Yeah, that's just, a, I love the bunkers. I'm, I'm t- taken aback because his last two books have been quite dark. Yes. And yeah. The Sky Falls is very dark. And while the Storm Rage is very, very dark. So this is definitely a change of pace. This is but definitely. I, I just remembered that he wrote Demolition Dad as well. I've not read that. 
Oh, that's funny too. Yeah. What it made it made me it made me think of just in terms of vibe. You know that I'm quite ill-read, so all my references Italian film, but vibe-wise, it made me think of Gregory's Girl. Like it has that same charm and that kind of the flush of first love and really cringy incidents at school. It's, it's it's a real treat. It's not out till January, but I'm telling you to get well, in there. You, you had me at Gregory's girl. It's everything to me, I think. I think well, it's the, all the right. One, I think it's everything to all right thinking people. Yeah, yes. I identify okay. with the pet, the lost penguin in Gregory's girl is me. Yeah, yeah, That I've thought that. That is, I see that. <laughs> see Do that. you? <laughs> I'm Chick Murray, sitting in the corner of that teacher. Yeah, you are. I'm going... Go away, you small boys. <laughs> that is you. I've always and thought that. Spending a lot of time contemplating consul cakes. You know, to get back to friendship, you know how you were talking about how you'd like us to be friends? Hmm. I've been thinking about you and your social skills and how we need to develop them. <laughs> and I think it's I think we need to expose you to more people. No. So I'm I'm hoping and praying that someone's gonna come ashore on this island I soon. Because if you look, there's a disturbance in the waves. Big splashes coming towards us. Can't be a person unless it's an incredibly athletic person. Well, it might be. Should we go and have a look? Okay, come on. It is a person. It's someone incredibly athletic. There aren't that many athletic authors. Very few athletic (laughs) authors. So I'm going to be intrigued to... To who it is. That's who this is. Frosting through the water towards us from... The horizon, because there's no nothing in between here and the horizon. I can and see who it is, Frank. Emerging from the waves. I who can see. It? I can hear them as well. It's it's J T Williams. It's J T Williams. J T Williams. J T Williams. Author of the Lithium <laughs> Bell Mysteries. Come ashore. Come ashore, J T. Here, have a dry robe. Thank They're you. All, where, where did you get that? You've never produced that dry robe before. <laughs> They're all the rage. Is this something you picked up on your off-island excursion? Yes, it is. It's what okay. all the it's what all the middle class groovers are wearing when they come out of the sea. Okay. So I, I knit nice. I knit I knit one. Are you drying off, JT? Yes, thank you. This is gorgeous. This is just what I needed. Come thank and sit you. by the fire. Come and sit by the fire and Ooh. we'll make you some hot chocolate. Would you like hot chocolate or tea? I love some hot chocolate. Oh, did you say tea? Did you say tea? Yes, I can do oh, you a tea, cooker. please. Yeah. How how do you take your tea? Really super strong, tiny bit of milk, no sugar. Oh Get my God, way. you are my tea yeah. twin. The Who reason that um, Nadia is sucking up to you so blatantly, and I can only apologise <laughs> for that, is that she's hoping you brought a little treat. Well, oh. something to have with our cup of tea. Come on, JT. Oh, do you know, when I when I was planning the snacks, I hadn't actually figured in the fact that we were going to have tea. Okay. I, because I was new, I was swimming. I brought, I brought what could be considered sporty snacks. Oh. Oranges. Now the reason I brought oranges, <laughs> Nadia, before All I fruit. you, the reason I brought oranges is because I feel they're so full of joy, right? To me, an orange, what does an orange say to you? To me, it just speaks joy and celebration like the sun i love them you can't help but cheer up after you've had an orange literally like eating sunlight i can say two things here jt first of all (laughs) first of all thank you and yes oranges are joyful (laughs) secondly we're on a flipping island (laughs) look around if i wanted tropical fruit i can just shuffle over a few meters 
but thank you, I suppose. I oh, if you ever have me back, I'll be sure to bring muffins. All right. Okay. Um, Fran's giving me that look now, which is the you're being rude to guests look. So I better I better be <laughs> I better be quiet and and let's go on to business because I want to say congratulations to you for the Lizzie and Bell mysteries that are taking the world by storm. You've won. You recently won the wo- the week. What was it? Book of the, the year. Week junior. But the week yeah, junior. Breakthrough book of the year. Breakthrough oh. book of the year, which is just fantastic. Thank you. So, JT, tell us all about the Lizzie and Bell Mysteries. So, the Lizzie and Bell Mysteries is my mystery series featuring two girls, Lizzie and Bell, who are friends. They come together as friends and as detectives. But Lizzie and Bell are actually based on real people. They're based on girls who lived in 18th century London. And I wanted to imagine what would happen if these two girls had met and come together to solve mysteries. So Lizzie Sancho is actually based on Elizabeth Sancho, who is the daughter of um, writer and abolitionist Ignatius Sancho. Mm -hmm. And Belle is based on Dido Belle, who was the heiress who grew up at Kenwood House in Hampstead. Amazing. It's going to be a series, right? Yeah, so there are two books in the series so far. So there's mm-hmm. the first one, um, Lizzie and, the Lizzie and Bell Mysteries, Drama and Danger, yeah, and was Danger. published last year. And then Portraits and Poison came out this year. Mm. So where does a story begin? I, I suppose two really key points were how I sort of came to know about the real historical figures that inspired the stories. Mm-hmm. So Lizzie and Belle, my main characters, in terms of their real life stories, they weren't detectives. That's that's my imagination mm-hmm. kind of playing with these characters. But Lizzie was the daughter, Lizzie Sancho was the daughter of abolitionist writer and composer Ignatius Sancho. And I first came across Ignatius and his story when I was working at the British Library. So I'm, I'm a massive geek. I love research. I love learning about history. And I was running these creative writing workshops um, at the British Libraries. So I'm always interested in how we can develop stories out of these kind of documents and stories mm. from the past. And when I came across Ignatius Sancho and I learned about him, I was just completely captivated. Here is a man who was born potentially, possibly even was born on a slave ship in 1729, Mm. was taken as a small child to um, Cartagena in Colombia, where he was christened Ignatius, which means flame. He lost his parents young. He was brought to, to London as a very young child and sold, you know, strange as that may sound to talk about people as though they're property, but we're talking about Britain at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. And he was sold to a family of three sisters in Greenwich. And there he lived with them as an enslaved servant. But by a stroke of luck, met a man called the Duke of Montague. And I always imagine that the Duke of Montague was so sort of impressed by Ignatius's spark, you know, by his curiosity and his desire to learn to read and write, which had been forbidden him. And for me, this is such a kind of key point in his story, this idea of reading as this potentially transformational power almost. And the Duke of Montague, wealthy man, fortunate man, had his own personal library and invited Ignatius into the library, offered to lend him books from his own library so that he could learn to read and write. Mm. And that's where Ignatius's story really takes a turn. He persuades the Duke to employ him as a valet in his household. And from then on, leaves the sisters, 
earns his own money, ends up buying a shop, a sort of grocery shop in the heart of Westminster, um, marries an African-Caribbean woman called Anne. They have eight children, who we kind of fondly name the Sanchonettes and the Sanchonettas. And here is this really joyous, Black family living mm. in the heart of London in the 18th century, um, just around the corner from Downing Street, on the site of what is now the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It's crazy. But Sancho became, we think, the first person of African descent to vote in this yeah. country. Yeah. He was a classical composer. He wrote letters to this kind of vast and varied network of people. So as soon as I discovered this story, I was reading Sancho's letters and his voice just kind of, jumps off the page it's this really kind of warm generous humorous exuberant voice i kind of just was carrying this man around in my head and i thought i have to write about him and I think that's the Bell. thing isn't it his voice he is obviously a man of great accomplishments and everything like that but if you read the letter from him and i first came across him because i'm a massive fan of tristram shandy yes and he wrote to Lawrence stern yes and the letter that he wrote to Lawrence stern is so full of grace Mm. and understanding and gentleness that it's like sometimes you look at an old photograph where everyone's standing quite stiff and there'll be one person with their head at an angle or mm. do, do you know what I mean they jump yeah. out at you because you just yeah. think oh that's the one and you kind of you're going through those 18th century letters which are incredibly decorous and and quite long-winded and mm. here you come across his and it's like oh you can hear his voice you can hear his voice Yes. And it calls out something very similar from Stern. The letters between the two of them yeah. are so full of affection and respect and they spark something mm. to life in each other. And it's beautiful. And all, all this is backstory, by the way. Well, there's, isn't, it's worth mentioning, isn't there a, a, re, a recent book by Patterson Joseph? Yes. yes. Was that that, that came out last year, didn't it? That's oh, right. Yeah. The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho. Yes. Yeah. So Patterson actually did a one-man show, like a theatre piece yeah. about Sancho a few years ago, which I went to see, and that was absolutely Ooh. kind of like a you know big big inspiration for me, like a huge sort of part of that journey for me. Um, and we've and it's lovely. We've been sort of doing some work together, sort of recently, sort of oh, having nice. conversations. Oh, we were in a school together a couple of weeks ago because, like for me, I've I've tried to make the focus and and the children I guess Lizzie because when when I was doing my research it was Sancho that really sort of drew me in but one of the things that I really noticed when I've been sort of researching this history and 18th century history in particular Jacobean's kind of slightly underexplored mm -hmm. I feel oh, like yeah, it's definitely. kind of it's sort of yeah it's newer territory isn't it in a way but I found out this really interesting thing and that was that I had noticed, obviously, that often the history that I was looking at was written by men about things that men were doing. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to find out about the experiences of women and girls um, and, the, and the experiences of women and girls of colour even more so. And one thing I discovered that just really struck me and I kind of couldn't get this out of my head was that as a woman, you could potentially attend a public meeting and you could raise points and you could speak up. But whoever was sort of taking the notes, if you like, or the minutes of that meeting, wouldn't write down anything the women said. They would only mm. write down the words of the men. And mm. I thought that was really interesting because from my point of view as a researcher, when I then come to those records, like sort of 200, 250 years later, you can look at these documents 
that we kind of imagine are sort of, you know, the truth, if you like, mm. sort of original historical documents, but they don't necessarily tell the full story, right? So you could read one of those documents and actually think that there were no women in the room. So that really kind of got me thinking that actually what's missing from these histories that we learn about in school or that we hear about or that we see on television. Mm. And for me, it was very much the voices of, of women and girls and of black women in particular. But when I was reading about London in the 18th century, it was such a diverse place. There yeah. were people from all over the world living in London and yeah. living alongside each other, working alongside each other. It was actually a really incredibly diverse community in ways I felt I'd never really got to see I'd never got to see that in the costume dramas I've no. been watching but actually this was this was where the excitement lay for me so I wanted to find a way of kind of detailing that and laying that out on the page so that we could celebrate it amazing like that's all fantastic and that all really comes over and the depth of learning comes over in the book and you really catch the atmosphere of that coffee house London and yeah. the excitement of that what made you decide to make them two girl detectives? Because that's what's really one of the things that's really <laughs> fetching about this book is that it's a cracking kind of girl detective story. It's got all that speed and velocity and quickness and mystery and all those things that you would want from from a really good detective story. Oh, thank you. So, I mean, I suppose in a way it did come out of a, a partnership. I'm sort of really drawn to this idea of like, again, like sort of friendships and partnerships. And and the friendship between the two girls was something that was really sort of cool for me. That was really kind of like the engine of the book with the heart of the book was the friendship. But in terms of how I got to write the book, while I was running these workshops at the library, I was running a workshop for teachers about Ignatius Sancho. And then someone came along, a woman came to my work, one of my workshops and she's called Jasmine Richards. And she runs an organization called Story Mix, which is like a fiction development studio, it's called, to help develop fiction that centers um, kind of, you know, black and brown children as the heroes and heroines of their books, because she had noticed, again, this absence in our literature. And she was kind of thinking about the idea of a mystery story happening around Sancho's shop and wondered if that was something I would be interested in writing for her, as it were, with her kind of as my agent, effectively. And at the time, I actually hadn't started writing professionally. I'd written a short um, story about Sancho. I'd actually written a sort of biography in verse, like a poem that a friend of mine was illustrating, and that later turned into a different book altogether. But I was a bit, I was a little bit hesitant. And, and when I started to think about it, I realised that in a way, as a researcher, like the work of a researcher or a historian and a writer, when you're doing the research for your work, it feels so much like being a detective, especially mm -hmm. when I'm looking at these histories where so much is hidden. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of, I'm reading these letters, but I'm trying to sort of read between the lines or looking at these amazing portraits because Sancho has this incredible portrait that Gainsborough painted of him and we also have this extraordinary portrait of Dido Bell as well, which you can yeah. you can still see at Kenwood House. There's a copy of a portrait of Dido Bell. And these paintings were so sort of intriguing. And I had so many questions of them that my own sort of work, my own research journey began to feel like the work of a detective. And I was starting to think, how could I bring these two girls together, Dido Bell and Lizzie Sancho, bearing in mind there's this quite complex, quite dark history, obviously, behind the stories. 
um, of the transatlantic slavery and the really difficult um, and challenging circumstances that the black communities in London are facing even on their own streets in London. How could I sort of bring these girls together in such a way as to invite them to challenge that history and to challenge the adults around them who perhaps aren't always behaving as they should. And so actually in the end, the mystery felt like the perfect vehicle for this work because it created this space whereby Lizzie and Belle could really take to, to task the, the men and women around them. I also love that you weave in, you know, the kind of magical superpower that is boys and girls, but especially girl friendship, that kind of intense friendship and partnership what did you draw on for that like were you thinking about friendships that relationships you had when you were that age other particular books that you were reading at that time when you were that age that kind of informed that definitely I've oh. always thought you know I've, I've used to be a primary school teacher you know I've oh, been wow. a mother for a long time and I've always thought you know when we go through sort of either difficult periods in our life or transitions like moving to secondary school or whatever it might be sort of one ally like one person that you can really rely on and confide in I kind of feel like you're going to be okay so I think you know I think things have really changed now they're really shifting in the world of children's literature in terms of who gets to see themselves reflected mm -hmm. in the pages of books but when I was growing up it was quite a different landscape and it was a, there was a long time, there were many years before I ever really felt like I saw someone who looked like me on the front cover of a book. And I didn't really notice that lack at the time. I don't think you necessarily do. Mm. But when I did first see the cover of a book called The Friends by Rosa Guy, it absolutely uh -huh. kind of knocked me for six. So two girls on the front cover, Felicia and Edith, who strike up this friendship with each other. So Rosa Guy had moved um, from Trinidad to New York as a young girl and had started going to school there. And Felicia's story kind of dovetails, I guess, with her own in that way. And I was so kind of knocked back, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. But I think I always had it in the back of my mind when I was developing this story. And I kind of thought that ultimately, whatever's happening out there on the streets, whatever's happening in terms of the mystery, really, you know, when the girls, when they each sort of wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, what's really going to matter to them is the development of their friendship. Mm. And I was also really interested in this idea of how do you keep a friendship going in the 18th century? You, know, you don't have phones. <laughs> you know, you've either literally... Yeah, that's really true. It's just a really good point. They can't send an emoji to each other. Like... Yeah, absolutely. Buddies, yeah. They had to write each other letters and wait for those letters to get delivered. They would have had to like walk miles to visit each other or in Belle's case, because she's very wealthy, perhaps, you know, travel by sort of carriage. Mm. But I was just really intrigued as to what that would mean for the development of a friendship. And in particular, I mean, so now I, do, I run writing workshops alongside the books. And what I tend to do is I, I invite the young writers to put themselves into pairs, create an imaginary detective agency and sort of oh. write letters to each other to sort of set out the sort of first steps of their investigation. But what I'm really interested in as well is how is your character going to come across on the page? You know, so Sancho's voice is so vivid mm. in his own letters. Yeah. I'm really interested in the ways in which our different personalities come across when we write at length. Mm. You've mentioned portraits a couple of times and one of the things that's striking about both the characters that you've mentioned is that we have a kind of bead on what they look like. Should we talk a little bit about Simone and the, the amazing illustrations yes. in this book which really do 
kind of add an extra dimension Definitely. how did that work out so so that was fantastic and again you know that was a new i mean this was a first book for both of us so simone oh, really? is the illustrator of the books so wow. she you okay. know she created the gorgeous covers where we see the girls kind of like sort of popping you know sort of running through the streets of london and the books are illustrated throughout that was a decision of um, of my editor, like Liz Banks at HarperCollins, for whom I will always be grateful. And I think it was a really good call because, again, the 18th century, it's not the easiest yeah. kind of time period to bring to life. And we wanted to kind of have another sort of way in, I guess, to these stories around this world that perhaps has been slightly hidden from our view. But actually, the challenge that Simone had was really, you know, because it's quite unusual, as you say, like for Sancho, for a black man to have had his own portrait painted in that way, the solo portrait centre, you know, centre of the canvas is really unusual. And even for Dido to have been painted sort of on this level alongside her cousin was really unusual. You know, right, what publishers well. will do yeah, is so that they'll invite you to send like references, mm, you know, to sort of right. help the illustrator. And I had to say, well, look, I've got a lot of visual material that I'm using. I was using like illustrations of Drury Lane Theatre, um, illustrations of the carriages and fashion. But actually, when you're looking at those sources from that time, black people don't appear in them in the ways in which we'd want them to be seen. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in those paintings, black people were often painted sort of down in the corner of the picture, sort of on their knees. And that was something that I ended up exploring in more depth in Portraits and Poison, because that was what I want, wanted the girls to challenge. Yeah. Mm. Um, so Simone had to really do a, a really sort of deep piece of imaginative work to take these two girl characters that she sort of created visually and then sort of fold them back into that visual landscape of the 18th century. And actually, you know, there's just some wonderful things that she's done with that. And the designers as well, I sent them lots of things like original playbills I found and case notes. I was obsessed with this idea that the girls would sort of like make these kind of notes and files as they went along to help with their investigation. So there's a lot of visual kind of material in the book to help the story roll along. Um, I'm so yeah. glad that you mentioned that because that's such an astonishing piece of work by Simone to do that. That shortcut that I think we always assume like, yeah, there'll be loads of reference pictures, but no, she's just had to quietly reinvent the wheel in order yes. to do these illustrations and that's just such a perfect example isn't it of the extra work that sometimes needs to happen absolutely and just so beautifully done and in the second book in particular you know where sort of art and illustration is a real focus um, mm. and she could really sort of go to town there you know we've all got our sort of strengths and sort of weaknesses haven't we and and for me like I think one of my strengths or what, what I lean into very much with writing is like voice and character what I find much trickier is the kind of physical landscape of writing I find it very hard to sort of hold spaces in my mind in my mind they're a bit like an escher painting or engraving they, they make sense up to a point but they perhaps wouldn't necessarily work in real life but there was one particular illustration in the second book where when i saw it with what simone had sort of done with it i was really taken aback because it actually felt as though she'd gone for a walk inside my mind and it absolutely sort of captured and found exactly what i'd imagined and how i wanted it to be well, on the and I think that's such a skill I don't know how she's able well, to well but I, I think you might be doing yourself down because one of the things I wanted to say was that I felt like your writing is extremely cinematic so yeah. I was actually going to ask if you had any background in screenwriting because 
I felt immediately you're very, you know, there's very vivid scene that, that was painted for me. Thank you. So that's really interesting. So no one's ever said that to me before, but film is a real kind of love of mine. So my first job was, you know, at, at a cinema. I used to work at the National Film Theatre. Cool. I used to spend as much of my spare time as I could at the cinema. Oh, what a dream and, job. Yeah, it was. It was great. How <laughs> I cool. It. I loved it. And I read. I do say this now when I go into schools and I'm speaking to younger people about writing, when they're asking about writing, I realise that we really have to give lots of space and time to the work of the imagination. So when we think mm. of writing, we mm. almost sort of think of this act of putting words on the page, however that might be. And this, you know, I've learned through the process of writing a book, most of the work that you're doing is just happening up here. It's completely mm. sort of invisible. But in my mind, how it works is that I'm constantly playing out. I do imagine it as playing out little films in my head. Mm -hmm. So you're having, oh, you're right. creating a world visually in your mind and having to hold it there like a house of cards and hope that someone doesn't come into the kitchen where my desk is at the wrong moment <laughs> so I talk and then my house of cards falls down <laughs> but basically it's the work of the imagination to create these spaces and even though I've come to professional writing quite late in my life all of my life I've always been doing that daydreaming and imagining mm. and sort of extending stories and just watching them in my own mind it's how I love to spend time it's how I sort of work out what I think about the world, how I feel about the world, is to spend a lot of time watching, if you like, um, these people sort of move through space in my mind and have those conversations with each other. That's amazing. I bet, I bet when you go and do stall visits, what's the reaction like? Oh, it's, it's really lovely because actually, I suppose, interestingly, I'm going into schools at the moment and kind of introducing the book to readers. Yeah. And now that the books have been out for a while, I am starting to meet some readers once they've read the books. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to more of that, if you sort of meet them, so that yeah. I can Because I'm really interested in what readers make of it, because that's who the work is for. If I'm honest, you know, if you'd said sort of like five years ago, the idea of sort of pitching this book that was about two black girls like running through London in the 18th century, it wouldn't really have been like the easiest kind of pitch or the easiest sell. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm absolutely thrilled that the books are out in the world. And I really love the fact that readers do seem to really embrace them. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of really take that as encouragement actually yeah well i mean they're well, fantastically written and they're exciting stories and brilliantly illustrated so i mean why wouldn't they fly you spend time with you want to spend yeah. time with those characters which is really oh, hard to pull off and it is the only important thing you know so thank is there going to be a TV series? Are you working on anything like that? Or I would love that. I mean, I, I'm like, you know, I would really love that because I do feel strongly, again, that this kind of lack of the sort of visual record of these mm -hmm. communities is really important. And I do think that there's definitely something there. So I try and explain sometimes when I go into schools that we've got to remember that when, we, when we're watching TV dramas, those aren't documentaries. And choices have still been made by storytellers, by writers, by directors, about who we get to see on screen, whether yes. it's, you know, a contemporary story or in the 19th century or in the 18th century. And now that so much more sort of research is emerging to show us that there were all these different group groups of people living in Britain um, in the past, I kind of feel like we do need to go back now to our visual culture and start to sort of, you know, readdress the record, really. I yeah. think there's so much work that can be done there, right? So I would love to see, you know, something like this on screen um yeah. it's not purely in my hands that decision <laughs> 
Hey, any any commissioners listening? Can we just flag up the Lizzie and Bell mysteries, please? It would be a great just thing. They're waiting to be done. Absolutely. Um, JT, as you can see, this island, we've got tea. We've got we've got a lot of oranges. We've got oranges, we've got oranges now, now. And we've got an awful lot of books, but we, we always like to ask our guests if they have any books they would like to leave for us to read. Oh yes, I would. I have brought one. Let me just oh, what have I done with it? Here we go. Rhyme stars, new young voices in poetry. Amazing. Um, and I haven't mentioned poetry, but I love reading poetry. I absolutely love it. And again, I think it sort of plays into my sense of sort of enjoying voices. So this is an anthology featuring five young poets, um, Ruth Awalola, Victoria Adequay-Bully, Abigail Cook, Jay Hume and Amina Jama. And I would say it's probably aimed at readers aged about sort of nine or ten plus. Mm-hmm. Very sort of accessible, but really thoughtful. Illustrated as well, actually, but really thoughtful, beautiful work. And whenever I sort of feel I need some inspiration in terms of language, the sound of the words that I'm working with, I always turn to poetry. So, yes, I would like to leave you with some beautiful oh, poems um, for the evenings around the fire. Is that quite a recent anthology? 2017. So it has been around for a little while. OK. Um, but again, I suppose one of the key things about it is that a lot of the poets were qu- at quite an early stage in their career when this book first came out. Yeah, even now, you know, each of them has been developing more and more work. Mm, mm. Great. Just in case um, any listeners are keen, it's called Rising Stars, New Young Voices in Poetry. And that's by Otter Barry. Yeah. Poems about community, identity, family, friends, the universe and more, says. Well, that sounds, that's going to keep me happy. I don't know what you're going to read, Frank, but I've got my poetry <laughs> book. So not my problem, is that it? Sounds great. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to sit here with your, your wimpy kid book. Okay, oh, you can know. have my wimpy kid books. I've remembered an authentic 18th century theatre joke. Do you want to hear it? (laughs) This is really true. Someone threw an orange at David Garrick. This is pulling all the threads together here, right? Someone threw an orange at David Garrick when he was acting and he picked it up off the boards and held it up and said, I think this is no civil orange. (laughs) Civil orange. So that's a joke that survived. Oh, I like it. Civil orange. Civil. I'm going to keep repeating it. Seville. <laughs> civil. Seville. Yeah. It took me a little minute. Little. Yeah, I think it probably took the audience a while. I thought <laughs> I thought that joke was good even before you do the Seville. Civil yeah. thing. Because I just like giving fruit personality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the Civil Orange might be quite a good character. I do. You could work on these oranges that... JT well, yeah, I mean, we've got no orange shortage. We could workshop sure. these, uh, uh, these oranges. <laughs> What's next for you, JT? What can we look forward to? Well, I have just written a new book with a friend, actually, an illustrator. So this has just come out. It's called Bright Stars of Black British History. And it's a collection of illustrated biographies of figures starting with John Blank, the African Tudor trumpeter, and coming all the way up to Claudia Jones, uh, the Trinidadian journalist who brought Carnival to the streets of London. Mm -hmm. And it's illustrated um, by Angela Vives, 
And again, I suppose really kind of just speaks to this sort of beautiful idea for me of like, how do we sort of imagine the past? How do we go back and give sort of visual, a visual yeah. image, a visual mm -hmm. record to these lives? Um, these, there are writers, um, musicians, politicians. We've got such a rich history um, in terms of sort of black presence and contribution. And I think there's still so much for us to kind of discover and share um, so yes, it looks absolutely beautiful. Congratulations! Yeah, the illustrations are gorgeous. I actually met Angela years ago. We had some, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have got some mutual friends, and um, it's so wonderful to see her work. That, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, she'll be delighted. Be so that's out, and is that out already, or is that? That's out up? already. It's published by Thames and Hudson. It, it was published at the end of September, so it's still very, very new. Gorgeous. Um, beautiful. It's, yeah, it's ready. Sancho's in there, Dido Bell's in there, but 12 other figures you can read all about. So I've kind of set them out in chronological order, with a little bit of kind of like um, nuggets of history in between to put everything in context, but just some amazing life stories. I think I'm really interested mm. in people's lives, the different decisions they made, what kind of dilemmas, challenges, but also joys, um, all of the things that they sort of overcame in order to do what they did and how they made a difference for us. Well, that looks amazing. That is definitely on my Christmas list. Heavy hint there, Frank, for you. Okay. <laughs> you're the only person that can buy me what's on my Christmas list. So I was going to put like an orange in the bottom of your stocking. <laughs> That's fine. That, do you know what? If I had an orange and that book, I'd be very happy. Okay, well, it's sorted. All right, lovely. Well, JT... Are you how how are you feeling after your cuppa? Do you feel full of energy? I've got to swim back now. I know I did I did I didn't want to pull that through. Look, the alternatives are stay in a wade in. I'm I'm a wader. I'm not I'm not a jumper. I'm not a diver. I mean, you don't have to go back, JT. You could just stay with us. Could I stay? I would love to stay for a little while if you'd have me. I would love to stay. You can have a nap in a hammock. Thank you. If you want, if you want. Well, look, don't rush back. Have a nap if you prefer. And I think as long as Frank doesn't offend them one more time, we might be able to persuade the ukulele of trio to play some music for us. That would be, they would sing you to sleep. Thank you so much. It's we'll been so wonderful talking to you. Frank, Thank you Matthew. so much Thank for visiting. You, you go and have really a little You're really looking to, forward to, to after your nap when Daddy's going to tattoo the both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, you're not to mention that to the guests. <laughs> okay. Don't mention the tattooing. I do that secretly. <laughs> night, night, JT. You have a little nap because Frank and I are going to pick up the convenient shell. Yeah, we're going to pick up the convenient shell. And hopefully there'll be some more book recommendations from the wonderful Emily Drabble of Book Trust fame. Let's pick up that shell. Hello, Nadia, and hello, Frank. It's Emily Drabble from Book Trust calling. Well, I've got five amazing books to tell you about. First up is a brilliant book by Keith Gray, The Den. It's one of the Barrington Stoke dyslexia friendly books. It's a story of 13 year old Marshall who dreads the long summer with his troubled, difficult dad until he and his best friend Rory find an underground bunker on the site of a knocked down haunted cottage at the edge of the, edge of the woods. They call it The Den and they sneak off to sleep down there, lying to their folks by putting the classic sleepover switch. But when Rory tells two other ex-friends about The Den, things get nasty and violent. 
It's good to read a book solidly on boy stuff, I think. Good to have a book dealing with complicated emotions, but using uncomplicated language, short sentences, and it's a short book. And it feels so pared down with every word is just perfect. It's a quiet masterpiece, actually, and it really made me sob. Could this be the book to hook a teenage boy who thinks he doesn't like reading? I think so. Now I want to tell you about Yuval Zomer's picture book, The Wild. Once upon our time, somewhere not far away, was the wild. Everything found a place in the wild, and the wild welcomed all. The beautiful wild is depicted by Yuval Zomer as a vibrant creature with eyes, claws and a tail. Then comes the sad bit. People begin to care less and destroy the wild by exploiting it. It takes a child to notice the wild is sick. It needs our help and the child speaks out and makes people notice. Changes are made and we restore the wild. It's tragic to have to have these sad conversations with young children, but they will hear about the climate catastrophe and children's books are the way to have these important conversations. This book is beautiful, hopeful and gentle too. Yuval Zommer is a stunning artist and a fabulous storyteller. Picture book The Very Special Thing by Alex Wilmore is a masterclass in drawing expressive eyes and Nadia, as a fellow expressive eyes drawer, I think you'll love it. Squirrel likes to collect things and her prized possession is her special acorn, but no one is allowed to touch her stuff and she wants more. She sets about taking everyone else's things for her collection without their permission. Then she loses her special acorn. Will the animal she stole from help her find it? This is a brilliant way to chat about the joy of sharing and being nice to your friends with very young children. I love it. When the Sky Falls by Phil Earle was published before you were cast away on the island, but I don't want you to miss it. It's 1941 during World War II and when everyone else seems to be evacuated to the countryside, 12-year-old Joseph is sent from rural Yorkshire to stay with his grand's best friend, Mrs F, in the city. She's an unfriendly woman and he's a cross boy who kicks out everything and feels totally abandoned. Now he finds himself in the centre of the Blitz and the only thing Mrs F cares about is the rundown zoo that she owns and particularly a huge silverback gorilla called Adonis. Adonis and Joseph first seem to take an immediate dislike to each other, but over the course of the story, their bonds deepen to a remarkable relationship and Joseph will do anything he can to protect Adonis and it seems the gorilla feels the same about him. Joseph has other battles with school, in particular bullying and his serious troubles with reading, like so many children of his generation before dyslexia was recognised or understood. This is a beautifully written historical adventure that will take readers on a very emotional and exciting journey. The pace is fast, the feelings run high, the reader ends up fighting for Joseph and Adonis all the way. Phil Earl is a wonderful author, so read this book and don't forget your tissues. Lastly, I've had a bit of a weird experience. I picked up a shell in my garden that seemed to be buzzing and I swear I heard Alex T Smith saying he was en route to the island for a Christmas special. 
I don't know if that's true, but it sparked me to read his gorgeous festive book, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King's Christmas Shenanigans. It looks and is the most Christmassy thing you've ever seen. The story is set at Christmas in a kingdom made from candy with candy canes, snow-topped pines, swans with red bows and stars and baubles, etc, etc. It's like breathing in all the Christmas films you've ever watched in one go. Intoxicating. The idea is that you read one chapter a night for 24 and a half chapters in the countdown to Christmas. So you really need to get hold of this book right now. The story is exciting, involving the Mouse King stealing the keys to the Kingdom of Sweets on the night before Christmas. Can Clara and Fritz Strudel and their friend the Nutcracker stop him? But mainly just soak up Alex T Smith's genius illustrations, his charm and wit and get Christmassy. This very much top trumps Elf on the Shelf, let's put it that way. I'd say best to read it out loud to a five plus audience and it would definitely work to read to siblings of different ages at the same time. Right, I'm packing these books up now and they should arrive by hot air balloon soon, hopefully before Christmas. Oh, well, thank you, lovely Emily Drabble from Book Trust for those recommendations. I'm, I'm going to keep my voice down because JT is properly asleep now. That is your hammock, isn't it, Frank? She's not it got is mine, my hammock, has she? Yeah, I'm going to just. Uh, Yay! Sit up. What are we going to do with all these oranges? Well, I was thinking, well, I also have a nap. You could maybe squish them, freshly squeezed orange juice. You know what I'm going to do? I'll tell you what? exactly what I'm going to do. What? I'm going to take the skins off. Yeah. And I'm going to slice them up really, really small. Yeah. And then I'm going to boil them in sugar. So I'm going to candy mm. the orange peel for you. Oh! <gasps> and you're going to love it. And oh, then, Frank! Yeah, and then. If I did that, yeah, you could be my friend. Well, I was going to say that's that's a really kind thing to do. Yeah, because I uh, think that's uh, think how friendships met... really start with you with, with candied someone, orange peel. Someone bribing somebody else with something that's really bad for them. I would prefer the freshly squeezed orange juice to the candied orange peel. Yes, could such you? A lie. <laughs> no, I really would. Could okay. you not do that for me instead? No, I'll do that anyway. Then I really will be your friend. Okay. Okay, we'll see how that works out. Okay, well, thank you, Frank, and thank you, JT Williams, and thank you to lovely Emily Drabble from Book Trust. And, and can I say this bit? Well, first of all, thank you, Jeff Bird. Thank you, Jeff Bird. Bird. And most of all, thank you. You can do it. The ukulele. Yeah. Oof, trio. Uff, uff, trio, <laughs> Frank. Oh, for God's sake. Thank you to the ukulele off trio. <laughs> thank you, listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oof. Oof. Where's oof. oof come from, Frank? I don't know. Oh, honestly. I do worry about you. When I first called you. them, they were just, when I first saw them, they just called Loads and Dave. <laughs>